So this is a series where we are celebrating the redneck lifestyle and embracing that in all of us there's a little bit of redneck. Um, I um, discovered a show this last week and uh, I'm always careful when I mention shows or movies or that kind of thing because I'm not endorsing or encouraging you to watch. I'm simply stating that I discovered a show. The Legend of Shelby the Swamp Man. If you haven't seen it, I'm not saying you should see it. He doesn't talk very Christ-like. But Shelby Stanga was first discovered on Swamp Loggers. And he is from Louisiana, down in the bayou. And this is one crazy redneck. So now they've created his own show. And this show starts out with him replacing a houseboat that was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. And so he's got a real estate agent that's taken him to look at different houseboats. And ultimately, he flies for the first time in his life up to St. Louis and finds a pirate ship, a pirate ship, like a literal pirate ship with pirate paraphernalia and cannons and the whole nine yards. And he sells it down the Mississippi back to his home there outside of Baton Rouge. And his, this show is all about his life and uh, it's really entertaining. And in one episode, after he has tried to find a way to make his pirate ship a little more redneck, he was looking for a gator head to put on his pirate ship. He goes to the home of a wealthy couple. And in this home, they have somehow some swamp rats that have gotten into their home. And he and his friend Shelly are trying to capture these gopher-looking rats that are running around this house, and he breaks all their furniture, and uh, he's got guns. It's just crazy, crazy, crazy. And so when I thought of Redneck this week, I thought, that just fits perfectly. Shelby, the Swamp Man. So I'm not endorsing it, but it'll make you laugh. Um, some of you, I know this is hard to imagine, but perhaps, maybe, when you hear the word Redneck, nothing comes to mind. Uh, for me, things like this come to mind. Yes, sir. Now, now, now let's talk about this. Now, let's, let's talk about this. Men, I, I guess women too. Men, it, you're not a redneck because you have hair on your back. You're not. And you're not a redneck if you decide to shave the hair that's on your back. But when you shave the number of your favorite NASCAR driver in the hair on your back, you are a redneck. Love some Dale. Keep going. Next one. True, true story. Apparently, rednecks don't have horseshoes to play the game of horseshoes, but they have plenty of toilet seats just laying around the house that they can have a game of horseshoes. I love that redneck. Next, next picture. Okay, now, for those of you who may be listening to the podcast, we have here an official redneck sitting on a lawnmower that has been... The seat has been replaced with a toilet, and on the back it says pot rod. And it has a bathtub as a side carriage. So if you drive a pot rod, you're a redneck. No questions about it, just for sure. Excuse the quality of some of these next pictures, but I wanted you to see that rednecks just figure out ways to get things done. And if you're hot in the summer and you don't have a swimming pool, you just put a tarp in the back of your truck and fill it up with water and enjoy a refreshing day in the shade. Now, they take it a step further in this next picture, and on a cold night, you just get an old bathtub and build a fire under it, and you've got yourself a hot tub. You know? Hey, you just, you figure out ways to get it done. Okay, next picture. 
You ever heard of ice fishing? Okay, typically in ice fishing, you go out in the ice and you drill a hole and you fish through the hole in the ice. But apparently, if you're a redneck and you find a floating piece of ice, you just sit on it and take your shirt off and fish off of it like you're trying to catch a bass. That's some good rednecks. And then the last picture. No, actually, we've got two more. So if you've got a swimming pool that's got algae growing in it and you actually put a john boat in it and you float around in your swimming pool in a john boat, you're probably a redneck. Okay? If you've done that, we love you. It's okay but you're probably a redneck. He's probably just testing it out. And this last picture, true story. They have redneck Olympics. People compete in events like this, belly flop into a mud pit. Okay, you can see that she is proud to be an American. And you can see that people are proud of her for jumping into the mud. So we all have a little bit of redneck in us. We talked about that last week. Today, I want us to go to scripture in the New Testament. And I want us to, we're going to look at four lessons that we can learn from the world's first redneck. The world's first redneck. Go with me. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you to Mark chapter number one. We're going to start reading in verse number one about the life of a man named John the Baptist. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of why he's the first redneck. And we're going to look at four things that he teaches us. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse number 1, says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice that the story of Jesus starts actually in all four gospels in the first chapter with a mention of this man named John the Baptist. So uh, this, this redneck had lots of importance in the story of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. So hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that there would be a man who would make and prepare the way for Jesus by declaring uh, and preaching out in the desert. Um, And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. He eventually baptized Jesus himself. John wore clothing, wore of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. You might be a redneck if you wear a camel hair outfit with a leather belt and you eat locusts and wild honey while you're living out in the desert. This was not your ordinary, common man. This was a unique individual who had a unique purpose in his life and lived his life in such a way that he didn't really care what people thought about him. He actually dressed like prophets in the Old Testament. He lived out in the countryside in a desert region for a lot of his life preparing for the work that God had him to do when he was to come back into Jerusalem and really usher in uh, the coming of Christ and the proclamation that he had Arrived. Verse 7, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. He had become powerful. He had gained a following. People had flocked even out into the desert to see. Old JB, as we'll call him. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was a redneck. He was a rebel with a cause. He was someone who was fixed and 
set in his ways to do what he had his mind set up to do. And thankfully, that was based on God's purposes for his life. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore things that most people in that day didn't wear. There was nothing significant about his life in the eyes of the world. He wasn't from royalty. He didn't live in a castle. He didn't have fine clothes. Uh, he, He wasn't prestigious. This was a preacher's kid. His father, Zechariah, his mother, Elizabeth, both from the line of Aaron, and he was born into a prophetic age where he fulfilled prophecy that he would prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, Hardcore man, took a Nazarite vow, never shaved. Um, He uh, lived out in the desert just kind of kind of hardcore. Never allowed alcohol to touch his lips, part of this vow. He lived like nobody in that day lived. And I think that when we look at the totality of his story, that there's four things that really kind of stand out to me that are lessons that we can learn from John the Baptist. And so we're going to look at a couple of snapshots of his life. And uh, if you have notes, I would love to encourage you just to write these four things down. Maybe you can go back and review them later if you want to write down some scriptures. That's great as well. So here's the first lesson that we can learn from the first redneck. Number one, Deserts develop dreams. Deserts develop dreams. This was a man who, from an early age, would have been told what his calling on his life was, but he spent a large majority of his life living out in the wilderness. And when you hear the word wilderness, you you might think like forest, you might think he's living in the woods, Uh, but the Judean countryside was more of a desert. It would have been a dry place. He would have lived a lot of his life in isolation. He would have been by himself and lonely a lot of the time. And he would have had opportunity to allow his life to pass him by without taking advantage of the season of preparation that was found out in this desert. Luke chapter number three, verses two through four, extremely important verses here is what it says. It says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. It's an important phrase. The word of God came to John in the desert. It was, it was in the desert when the word of God came to him where he realized the full potential of who he was and what he was called to do. And it was this preparing ground that played a huge role in his life. Verse 3 So he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now this seems somewhat unapplicable to us. We don't live in a desert. We don't live in a countryside that's barren. We don't live in a place of isolation for a large part of our lives, especially in the culture we live in. But I think many of us would identify with desert-like, wilderness-like experiences that we go through in life. And here's the cry of our hearts when we go through hard times, whether we go through tragedies, whether we live our lives feeling like we're isolated or alone and loneliness kind of plagues our lives or we feel like failures, maybe we've made some bad decisions and our past kind of haunts us and we live almost in this dry desert-like state for many of us. 
It's tempting for us just to say, you know, Jesus, rescue me from this situation. Uh, make, make things better. We want things to uh, be lush and we want things to be full of life and we want there to be an abundance of things in our life. And our goal for most of us is to live life avoiding the wilderness, avoiding the desert areas of life. But unfortunately, life deals us its own set of cards from time to time. And we go through trials, we go through hardships, we experience pain and we experience persecution and we experience trials that really honestly test our very character from time to time. And the thing that John the Baptist would tell us is that no matter what kind of desert region you're living in, no matter what type of hardship or trial or lonely or isolated experience you may be in right now, it's in those very moments and those very seasons of your life where the word of God can come to you. And you can take advantage of those seasons of your life to prepare you for what God wants to do in your life that's great. See, many of us, we want to avoid the desert times. And, and when hard times come, we just cry out, God, save us. We don't want to go through this. And we want you to fix things in our life. But so many times, God allows us to go through the desert because it's in the desert that we have no one else to turn to but God. And he gets us sometimes stripped away of all, sometimes the comforts of life and the conveniences that we lean into. And he strips all that away and allows us to go through difficult seasons so that he can prepare us for something great that's to come. You know, Moses in the Old Testament made a mistake when he was living in Pharaoh's house. He killed an Egyptian and he fled. He feared for his life. He fled to the desert region of Moab. He became a shepherd for 40 years. He tended flocks out alone by himself. And I believe that it was probably in that time that God used probably that lonely shepherding experience to prepare him for something great because it was in the very same region that he would lead the children of Israel out of slavery. And how convenient that he now knew every turn and every creek and every green grass area and every place that he could lead these people because God had allowed him to go through a wilderness area so that he could lead other people out and experience great things. Even Jesus himself was led by God's spirit into the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and at the end of that he was tempted. This was the son of God who endured hardship but it was the very thing that catapulted him really into the life of his ministry and great things. And so John the Baptist would tell you and me today, if you're going through a hard time, if you feel like you're in a wilderness or a desert area, don't waste your desert area. Don't allow the inconveniences and the hardships to make you look past where you are today so that you don't take advantage of the preparation that God has you for the next season that he's going to take you out. Deserts develop dreams, and the very dreams that we have inside of us are sometimes realized in the desert. The second lesson that I think John the Baptist would teach us is that experience ignites boldness. John the Baptist, he was a bold man. He was a man with a mission. He was a man that had a message, and he didn't back down from anyone. His message wasn't an easy message to preach. He preached a message of repentance to people. He told people to repent of their sins, to change their ways. His message wasn't tamed for anyone. It didn't matter who he was speaking to. He would call people out and speak on behalf of the Lord. 
to them. I can relate to John the Baptist in some small parts of my life and my ministry because, you know, it's hard to tell people that life that includes sin is not a life that pleases God. And I can just tell you, it's not easy for me from time to time to stand up and say things like, you know, if you're sleeping with someone that's not your wife and that's sin and you need to repent, that if you aren't honoring God in certain areas of your life, if you aren't obeying and honoring your parents, students, that that's sin, that you need to change your ways. And some of the most tense conversations that I ever have from this stage involve directing towards people to see the sin in their life and to repent and to change. That's the true calling that we have as followers of Christ is to lay down and die to ourselves and turn from our ways and follow Christ. And so John the Baptist's mission, his message was a difficult one to proclaim and he was extremely bold. So where did that boldness come from and how did he stay so faithful and committed to this message? And I think that it begins before he was ever even born, really. Let me, let me give you some background information on his entrance into this world, and we're going to read part of this story. John's father was Zechariah, as I mentioned. His wife's name was Elizabeth. Uh, his dad was a, a priest. He was a preacher, so he was going to be a preacher's kid, but Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't have child. And so God sent word to Zechariah that he was going to have a child, that his wife, Elizabeth, was going to be pregnant. And they had tried, as you can imagine, to have kids, and they had probably prayed about it. And he was at a place in his life where he probably felt like that would never happen for him. And so when word came to him that he was going to have a son, he wanted some proof. He, he was like, you know, if, if you're not just making this up, like, I, I want to have some hard proof. And in that moment, God shut his mouth, and he couldn't speak. And he didn't speak until John the Baptist was actually taken on his eighth day to be circumcised in the temple. And then his mouth was open when he actually named him and said his name will be John. He actually wrote it on a sheet of paper and then his mouth was open. So this was, this was a special child. This, this wasn't just an ordinary kid. This wasn't just some run-of-the-mill child that grew up in this area. This was a young man whose life fulfilled prophecy that had happened hundreds of years earlier. And he was a miracle child. He was a child born to a woman who couldn't get pregnant. John the Baptist was in his mother's womb at the same time that Jesus was in his mother Mary's womb. Okay? Distant cousins. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. She gets word that Elizabeth is now with child and she wants to go visit Elizabeth and just congratulate, encourage, celebrate with her that she was going to have a child. And, and listen to this part of the story in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse number 39. It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. How are you doing? So great to see you. Excited for you. Verse 41. Love this. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. This is John the Baptist. The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist's first encounter with Jesus Christ wasn't face-to-face. It was womb to womb. And in his mother's womb, he had an encounter. He had an experience. Just by hearing Jesus' mother Mary greet his mother Elizabeth, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he leaped for joy. 
He was excited. I love that this is included in Scripture, that his encounter with Jesus was a call for excitement and rejoicing, that in his mother's womb, he celebrated, he leaped. You know, so many times we, we feel like our relationship with Jesus has to be like neat and pretty and clean and reserved and quiet. I love today that we could just get together and just celebrate the goodness of God, that Jesus is the hope of the world. And John the Baptist had this experience before he ever met Jesus face to face. Before he ever met Jesus face to face. Verse 42, in a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you were bare. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This was confirmation that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, that this was a special kid. And in his mother's womb, of all places, John the Baptist had his first experience with Christ. You can imagine the stories that he would have been told growing up. You can imagine his mom telling him, you know, we tried for years to get pregnant and we just couldn't get pregnant. And you were a miracle. You were sent from God. You were supernaturally given to us. And you know, your life is a fulfillment of prophecy. And it was confirmed actually when Jesus' mom came to visit me and she simply greeted me and you started jumping around in my belly. And he would have heard as a child who he was and what his purpose in life was. And he would have leaned into that experience to believe that the life that he would leave would be worth living. You know, so many times people have passing experiences with different things. And they'll tell someone, hey, you know, I, I heard that, you know, the legend of Shelby the, the Swamp Man, it's a pretty good show, I heard it, you should probably check it out. But someone who sees the show usually talks about it with a little more boldness. Come on, dude, I mean, he was chasing these swamp rats. I mean, he was stepping on coffee tables. He was breaking these rich people's furniture. It's the funniest thing you've ever seen, man. You've got to check it out. There's a difference when people experience something, the level of boldness that they proclaim things, than when someone just hears something secondhand. Some of you love to talk about your gadgets, and you love to talk about your music, and you love to talk about movies. And typically, the things you're most bold about, that you proclaim with the most passion are things that you've experienced yourself. And so John the Baptist would tell us, if you can just experience Christ, and he'll give you this boldness through his spirit to allow you to do everything that he's called you to do. And this experience can ignite boldness in you. And he would say, you don't have to be one of those Christians that just sits on your hands. You don't have to be one of those Christians that just twirls your thumbs and you just kind of go through the motions. He says, we serve an incredible God. He's done incredible things for us. He's worth proclaiming. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter how they look at you. You need to tell people. I'm amazed sometimes, you know, when people have encounters with Christ. They're saved. They're born again. And they have family members. They have close friends that they live with. And it's almost like they don't want to offend people sometimes, you know? Like, I don't, I don't want to talk about this too much. I don't want to be that fanatic guy. I don't want people to think that I'm just some hyper-spiritual. I'm not for that. I don't, I don't want you to be so religious and zealous that, that you're no good to this world. But man, John the Baptist would say, that experience, let it ignite 
this boldness inside of you and you'll experience great things. Rednecks don't care what people think about them. And neither should we if we've experienced Christ. The third thing that John the Baptist would teach us is that greatness deferred lends a greater reward. Greatness deferred lends a greater reward. And I have kind of like a sub lesson that he would say, like probably really boldly, and he would like yell at us and say, it's not about you. It's not about you. John the Baptist would have been out in the wilderness. People would have flocked out to be baptized by him. He would have proclaimed this bold message that for a lot of people would have been hard to proclaim, but he proclaimed it with boldness because of the experience that he had and people flocked to him. He began to have disciples and followers and people would go with him as he would preach and proclaim this message of repentance from sins, preparing the way for Christ, declaring that there's one coming after me that I'm not even worthy to touch the thongs of his sandals and he would have had these people following him. He would have had great opportunity to start feeling puffed up and proud like he had accomplished something that, that he was good enough that, that his ability and his status was admirable that people would lean into it but he didn't really approach life that way. John chapter 3 starting in verse Number 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John had sent his disciples to Jesus, remember, had an experience in the womb, but hadn't met him face to face, and he hears that there's this man named Jesus, and he wants to know, is this the one that I've been proclaiming is coming? And so he sends some disciples to Jesus It says, go and ask him, is he the Messiah? Is he the one that I've been proclaiming? And so Jesus sent them away and told them yes. And so after that, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Aegean countryside near where John the Baptist would have been. He spent some time with them and and he baptized. And it says, and now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. And so, so Jesus is now with his disciples and he's baptizing people and he's already told the disciples of John the Baptist to go back and tell them that he is the Messiah. And then John the Baptist is in the same region around the same water baptizing his followers as well. Verse 24, this was before John was put in prison. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. We got, we got a problem, John the Baptist. Like, you remember that, that guy Jesus that we went and spoke to and most people are going to him to get baptized. Now, they're not coming to you to get baptized, by which just confession of church ministry world here. Leaders in the church would have called a meeting and said, whoa, 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 we got to fix this because they're going to someone else's church. And they're going over there. We got to figure out how to get them back because, you know, they might be taking money with them. They might be serving. They might have influential relationships that we need to build our church. And so this is a problem. We got to, we got to go confront this head on. We got to figure out what the issue is. Churches split because of things like this and people go to start churches and there's jealousy and there's contention and and people say things that aren't nice in ministry. But notice what John's response was when he heard that people were going to Jesus 
instead of him. Verse 27, to this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Listen, I love this verse. It should be a life verse for all of us. He must become greater. I must become less. Listen, guys, I know, I know. They've been coming. I've been baptizing. It's been growing, and people have been coming from out of the woodworks, and they want us to baptize. They're listening to our message of repentance. They're listening to us say, hey, there's one coming after me. And guys, like, that's him. Like, he's here. And so now it's time for me not to get jealous and, and try to figure out ways to keep people from going to him, but to embrace who he is and his greatness and become less in myself. It's not about me. And so he defers the greatness that he would be able to hold on to, to Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about me. Deferred greatness lends a greater reward. It's not about him. His disciples would have embraced this. But listen to the beautiful part of this story. Luke chapter 7, verse 24 through 28. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. So Jesus is now teaching. There's a crowd gathered. People are starting to follow Jesus. He's gaining momentum. Fewer people are going to John the Baptist. And Jesus is now going to address this crowd about John the Baptist. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxuries are in palaces. Like this wasn't a special guy. What did you go out to see? He wasn't royalty. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Listen to Jesus' words. This is the one, the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Confirms the prophecy is John the Baptist. And then verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, that would be all of us, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus himself says, of all the men that have ever walked this earth, not one greater than John. Well, how can that be when John's whole mission is saying, I'm trying to become less. Guys, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about him. Just, just look to Jesus. Just look to Jesus. Let's point people to Jesus. It's okay if they don't come to us and go to him. That's the point. We want them to go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. And then you've got Jesus saying, he's the greatest man to ever walk this earth. Greatness deferred lends a greater reward. You've all been in situations where you try to cry out, hey, look at me. Hey, notice me. Hey, look what I'm doing. Your kids do this. My son does this. Hey, daddy, come look at this all the time. You want to be noticed. You want to be noticed. But there's nothing more special than not searching for accolade and someone noticing something in you and speaking to others what you would feel guilty and ashamed to say about yourself. It's not our goal to attain greatness, to proclaim how great we are, to seek greatness. We simply become less. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And in that 
lack of pursuit of recognition. We allow Jesus and his glory to speak on our behalf. Now, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but, but this is kind of, it's kind of backwards in our church world. I want you to think about this for a second. How many people come to Jesus and they want Jesus to do something for them? You know, my marriage is a shambles. Jesus fixed this. You know, my finances are out of control. Jesus fixed that. I'm lonely. Jesus fixed that. I've messed up. I've made some bad decisions. Jesus fixed that. And we go to Jesus with this attitude of, I need you to fix my life and make it better because I can't stand it anymore and you can fix it. Now listen, there's benefits to following Christ. Hands down, in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about one specific benefit for three weeks. But the, our goal in a relationship with Jesus isn't so that he can do something for us. No, it's us coming humbly at his feet and saying, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? It's not about me. I don't care if I don't get recognized. I don't care if anyone ever puts my picture up on a screen or writes a book about me or sings my praises. It's about you, Jesus. And John the Baptist would say, if you'll defer that greatness to Jesus, if you'll become less and let him become more, you'll experience a greater reward. Fourth and final lesson I want to talk about today is a lesson that John the Baptist would say, knowing your role frees your soul. Excuse my rhyme. Knowing your role frees your soul. John the Baptist never questioned what his purpose was. He never acted out of searching for something because he knew his purpose. And in that knowledge of why he was created, why he was on this earth, he was free he was free from what people thought about him. He was free from the outcomes of everything that he did in life. He was free from living a life to please other people because he simply knew what his role was. He knew he wasn't the star. He knew that he wasn't the one in charge. He was simply serving the one who was. And in that role, embracing that role, he experienced a freedom that few of us have probably experienced We've talked about the prophecy that he fulfilled, but I want to read it, Isaiah 40, verse 3, one more time. A voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. That was why he was created. That was his purpose. He knew that that was his role. He knew that before God created the earth, that he had a plan for his life to prepare the way for the Lord. And because he knew that, and he knew that his role in God's story was to prepare the way and preach a, a message of repentance of sins and baptize people and tell them to prepare for the Lord and look for the coming of the Christ. He was free to experience life differently from most of us. His life ended really in a harsh way. A little confusing. People would say, if he was the greatest, if Jesus said he's the greatest man that ever lived, I mean, he's, he's got to die rich. He's got to die healthy. He's got to have tons of kids and a huge family. I mean, he's got to have everything that we ever want in life. It's not really this whole redneck story. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse number 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Talk had now gotten around to King Herod about this Jesus. 
And he starts thinking, wait, wait, this is someone that I already know. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. That's how his life ended. Here's how the story goes. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Now, we don't know exactly the context, but his brother Philip had a wife named Herodias, and now Herod is married to her. This was forbidden according to their law, whether he had had an affair with his brother's wife. We don't know the whole story, but it was unlawful for him to be married to his brother's wife. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What was he saying with boldness? Repent. I don't care if you are the king. You're living in sin. You're married to your brother's wife. That's, that's, according, that's not according to God's law, and you need to change your ways. You need to repent. And so Herodias gets all out of sorts. Herod, you've got to do something. And he's just making a big deal about this. We've got to suppress him. And so Herod has him arrested. Verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So he would say, dude, you're living in sin. You've got to change your ways. There's one coming after me that's great, and you're living this life that's not in accordance to what he wants for your life. And so he would be intrigued, but he wouldn't really do anything about what John was saying. So he had him put in prison. Verse 21, finally, the opportune time came. And on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Probably a seductive type of dance. This is now his wife, Herodias' daughter, probably not his own daughter, but he's now looking at this young woman dancing and is probably pleased along with his dinner guests. And so the king says to this girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Anything you want, I'll give it to you. And he promised her on oath, oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. He looks on this young lady dancing. He says, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. Just let me know what you want. So verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist the mother answered. Herodias says, ask for John the Baptist's head. This is our chance. We can have him put to death. And at once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. How archaic is this? How evil is this? This godly man, the greatest man to ever walk the face of this earth, is now imprisoned because of the bold message that he's proclaiming. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. And he presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came. 
took his body and laid it in a tomb. He knew his role. He knew why he was here on this earth was to proclaim that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming after him to preach a message of repentance. And on his deathbed, he remained faithful to that call. Can you imagine? Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. He's in this prison. He's, he's bound together and an executioner comes in and says, John, I'm sorry to tell you this, buddy, but Herodias' daughter has asked for your head on the platter and so we're going to be beheading you. And in a moment where most of us would have cried out, no, wait, 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 let's fix this. I'll change my ways. Just let me talk to her. Let me talk to her and I'll smooth things over. We'll figure this out. I'll, I'll, I'll stop badgering him. I'll stop telling him that he's living in sin. I'll stop telling him what I've been telling him. Just let me fix things. Let me, let me get things together. I, I don't want to go through this. That's not fair. I don't understand this. Just, just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. But John the Baptist in perhaps his greatest moment on this earth because he knew why he was here and he had this freedom not to please people and not to impress people was led probably with his hands bound behind him to this executioner's butcher's block and he was probably thrown down on his knees and they probably laid his head on this block And I can imagine his last words. Tell Herod he's got to change. You need to tell him he's got to stop living that way. And it was over. When you know your role, you are so free from what this life could throw at you. And you'll walk through situations that you think you can't bear with a peace, knowing that you're doing exactly what God's called you to do. This was one rebel with a cause. This was one redneck that didn't care what anybody thought, but he proclaimed who he was, and he was proud of who he was. And he lived his life declaring the greatness of Jesus. When you know your role, it frees your soul. You say, well, that's the hardest thing for me to learn in my life, what my role is. No, it's not. Jesus told us all before he ascended to the Father to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. It doesn't matter if you're a dentist. And when you're cleaning those teeth, your goal is to declare the greatness of of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom. You don't know that you're not raising the next Billy Graham and the next great preacher or the next great... It doesn't matter if you're an accountant. It doesn't matter if you work digging ditches. It doesn't matter if you're in construction. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do. We're not talking about an occupation here. We're talking about a life that's full of God's purpose. That's why he allows us all to have different paths in this life. And 
I'm fortunate that he's called me to preach the gospel. I'm proud of that. I love that. And you should be just as proud of what he's called you to do. It doesn't matter if you're on stage singing songs or if you're out picking up trash on the side of a road. It doesn't matter. When you know your role and you know that it's not about you and serving Jesus isn't about getting to a certain level or a certain place in life, then you're free just to forget what everybody else thinks and just focus on doing what God's called you to do. You'd be the best stay-at-home mom for Jesus. You'd be the best doctor for Jesus and let people see their lives healed and restored. You'd be the best teacher for Jesus and you teach our next generation. You educate them, but with a heart to serve Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do. You just know your role. It's not about you. It's about him. Father, thank you for this opportunity today just to look at a life of a man that, wow, many of us probably wouldn't want his life, to be honest. We wouldn't want to live out in the desert for much of our life. We wouldn't want to wear camel hair clothing. We wouldn't want to eat locusts and wild honey. We wouldn't want to preach hard messages. We wouldn't want to do hard things. But, Lord, this was a man who served you till the day he died. From before he was ever born to the day he died, he served you with his whole heart. Let us be that rebel with a cause, Lord. Let us be that passionate and bold about what our role here on this earth is. And let us have a zeal to see your name be made great. And with every head bowed, with every eye closed, some of you may be here today and you may not know Jesus. And your life may be empty of hope and peace it's because you haven't experienced salvation that's found in Jesus Christ and you haven't surrendered your life to him and you haven't given him the place of savior in your life. And you may still be trying to fix things and you may still be trying to attain greatness on your own merit. But maybe just maybe something that was said here today or a song that was sung has touched your heart and you feel right now like you want to give your heart to Jesus. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus was Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, you can call on the name of the Lord and you can be saved. I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. And if that's you, and you say, I've never given my heart to the Lord, and today I want to do that. I want to be that rebel with the cause. I want to live my life in such a way to honor and be a part of God's story. And the first step is experiencing salvation and receiving new life in him. If that's you today, when I say this prayer out loud, you just say it in your heart. Say, this, say, say dear Lord Jesus, I surrender to you today. I believe that you love me that you gave your life for me. And I want to commit to serving you all the days of my life. I receive salvation and I give you the place of Lord of my life. Please forgive me 
of my sins and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen.